You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. All right. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? All right. As Bailey said, my name is Jake, and usually I am at our downtown church, and I had the privilege to teach here last week and excited to be here again this week. Uh, My girls were really excited when last week we were rolling out of the Lexington parking lot, and I said, hey, we're going to be here next week. They got really excited. They're not that excited when it comes to our downtown Kid Town, but for whatever reason, y'all, y'all got some magic at Kid Town, so thank you for that. Uh, and as Bailey said, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. If you have a Bible, would encourage you to turn there. And as you're turning there, one reason I love the passage we're going to look at is this kind of sort of feels like a TED talk that you have in the Bible. Uh, the scenario Paul finds himself in is from here on out in the book of Acts, Paul is going to different parts of the Roman Empire and he's telling them about Jesus, hoping to make disciples and plant churches, and he's using different strategies with each of these folks. And with this one, it's it's really interesting. It's really unique. For one thing, missiologists and scholars look at this passage, and they like break it down a lot as an example of how we engage cultures that may have never, ever heard about Jesus before. So I love this passage. I'm excited to share it with you. So if you want to read with me, starting in verse 16, it says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, so real quick, Paul left his other buddies in Berea to get a head start to go to the city of Athens. Athens was kind of the intellectual capital of the world. So think of it like the Harvard or Yale of that time. All the top dogs like Socrates and Plato, they're all coming out of Athens. So he's going there. He's like, that seems like a great place to start a church. Let's go there. So he's in Athens and it says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. There was actually even a saying at that time that it's easier to find a God in Athens than a man because the whole city was just covered in idols. The city was full of them. So at that time, the Roman culture, they're deeply polytheistic. They worship a ton of different gods and they have statues plastered all over the city. And it's not like they believed the statues in and of themselves were actually a God, but that these statues were sort of these places of worship that represented who your God was. And the logic was at that time that these gods needed something from you. They needed your worship. They needed ritual. They needed sacrifice. And if you gave them enough of that, in turn, those gods would give you something in return. This, this, Roman Empire, Athens, is full of idolatry. And to be clear, when the Bible talks about idolatry, it goes a little bit broader than worshiping statues. The Bible speaks of idolatry as anything you place as ultimate in your life, what you sacrifice your time and your attention and your devotion towards. Whatever your ultimate goal in life is, that is your idol. So for example, the Bible will talk about if your ultimate goal in life is money, then that's your ultimate, that's your idol. If your hope, your joy rests on how much money you have in the bank account, lo and behold, that is your idol. And we're gonna talk about that more in a bit, but just keep that category in our minds. Verse 17. So Paul, he's in Athens and it says, he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day 
with those who happen to be there. So we're going to zoom in on that last part. He goes to the marketplace to talk to people about Jesus. And so we're clear, when it says the marketplace, this is not like a farmer's market where he starts telling people about Jesus. It's not like the Soda City farmer's market or anything like that. The marketplace back then, it was like this intellectual hub where people would gather together and exchange philosophies and ideas to see like whose ideas would win. It's like this total nerd thing. But again, this is Athens. This is like what they do. They like, you know, geek out and spend their free time just debating in public with each other. So Paul goes to the marketplace where these debates are happening. Read with me verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So he's at the marketplace. He's talking with some of the top philosophers of the day, the Epicureans and the Stoics. These are highly logical, rational people with really deep worldviews and really high intellect. And he starts to join in on the conversation. He's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? Hey, let me tell you about this Jesus. Then it reads on. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? So babblers were people who just rambled on on topics and ideas, shallow thinkers. They weren't really that intellectual. So they hear Paul talking about Jesus and they say, what does this babbler have to say? For those of you who are uh, familiar with this, this is what you call a sweet burn by the Athens. This is what they are trying to do to Paul right now. They're just making fun of him like, yo, what is this dude talking about here? But keep reading, verse 18. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul is talking to them about Jesus and some people are writing him off like, oh, this guy's new in town. He has no idea what he's talking about, whatever. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. All right, so this is where it gets kind of cool. So some of them hear Paul at the marketplace. Some people just make fun of the guy outright. He's like, whatever, you know, you're a babbler, who cares? But a lot of other people are like, yo, who is this Jesus that you're talking about? We want to hear more about this. And so they bring him to the Areopagus, which is like the high council of Athens. This is like some of the most uh, rational, prestigious, most influential and wealthy people in the city of Athens. And with this high council, a lot of times what they would do is if you had this new teaching or this new God in mind that ought to be worshiped in the town, they would hear you out. They would say, all right, well, you know, you have 10, 20 minutes, whatever, We want to hear who this God is that you are presenting. And if we like what you're saying, maybe we'll add him to the God collection in our city and people can go worship him. So if you've ever like watched The Voice, this is kind of like that, where it's like the council have their back turns towards Paul and Paul's, you know, going to tell them all about Jesus. And if they really like what Paul has to say, they'll kind of, you know, metaphorically, it's not really like the voice, it's an illustration. But, you know, they'll push the button and turn around if they like him, you know, that's what Paul's going for here. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, and what we're about to get is an outline of Paul's presentation. This is like his TED talk, and notice how he starts. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that you are in every way very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, 
I found also on an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So their hall of gods and statues, there is a blank spot at one of these places, and it just says to an unknown God. There's no statue, it's just an altar that says that. Now there are two interpretations as to what this unknown God is that these Romans had there. Option number one is, The Romans, they were deeply polytheistic, worshiped a lot of gods, but they also believed that there was a head god that oversaw all these other gods. But the head god is like unknowable, so transcendent. It's like, yeah, we can't even begin to fathom what that god is like. That's option number one. Option number two is the unknown god could have just been this generic placeholder for extra gods that they might want to include in the mix, you know, there just in case we miss one sort of thing. I lean towards option one, but either way, Paul uses that as a launching point to talk about Jesus. He says in verse 23, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So it's pretty cool. He says, all right, y'all have this category in mind of this unknown God. Well, I know who he is. Let's talk about it. And if you recall from last week, when it comes to the mission of God, this is Paul using different means to reach different people. So usually what happens in the book of Acts is whenever an apostle wants to go tell people about Jesus, what usually he does is he goes to the synagogues and he says, hey, y'all read your Old Testament, right? Okay, I read my Old Testament too. Let me show you how it all talks about Jesus. But here in this context, they don't have the Old Testament. They're not familiar with it. They don't have those categories, but they do worship gods. And so Paul says, all right, Let's talk about that. Y'all worship gods. I worship a God. Let me tell you about my God. And so that's when he begins telling him about, that's when he begins telling them about Jesus. He's using their terminology to reach them. Verse 24, he keeps going. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human needs as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he starts where they are by talking about the unknown God, but then he gently confronts them on their thinking. He's saying, hey, there's some logical problems with how you talk about your gods. He's saying, hey, if you are worshiping your gods, but these gods need something from you, if they need your worship and they need your ritual and sacrifice, they they need something. But the God I worship, the true God, he doesn't need anything from us at all. He created everything. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. So like I mentioned earlier, the way worshiping gods worked back then was a bit of a trade-off. You give that God your worship and ritual, and in return, that God gives you something depending on what kind of God they were. So if you wanted money, you go to the God of money, and you worship that God, and you sacrifice and do all the ritual in hopes that you will get that in return. The same with if you wanted wisdom, you would go to the God of wisdom or beauty, or pleasure. You would go worship those gods, give them what they need, and in return, they might give you something back. But here, Paul is saying the real God is so glorious and transcendent. Paul says that he is his own reward and not to be sought as a means for anything else. Keep reading. He says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. 
I love that. This God, he is transcendent. He is glorious. He's created everything in the universe, and he actually wants you to know him, and no one is out of reach to do so. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, and even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. All right, I love this. Here's what's so baller about what Paul just said in verse 28, okay? Paul is showing them about who the God of the Bible is, and to prove it, he just used two quotes in verse 28. You know, if you look at verse 28, there are those quotation marks. It's in your Bibles too. That's not coming out of the Bible. That's coming out of like pagan philosophers in their day. So Paul is just the man here. He like knows their stuff. He's like read their stuff, and he's quoting their own stuff to say, no, no, no. Y'all are thinking that's about some unknown God. I'm telling you, the stuff that y'all have been reading about is actually all about Jesus. Man, this, this dude, he's a baller, I'm telling you. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. Again, Paul's confronting their logic gently. He's saying, if God is the creator of everything, do you think a statue is going to truly represent him? Really? Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, he's saying Jesus has come, Jesus has descended from heaven, and he is the proof that he is truly God and he is raised from the dead. The fact that he has conquered death shows that he is God. He is who he says he is. If you need any proof, go to the empty tomb, talk with people and know this person, this Jesus, he is God. He has conquered death. Verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear about this again. Verse 33, so Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So notice, in those couple of verses, Paul gets three different responses after sharing Jesus. Some people make fun of him outright. Some people want to hear more about him. Other people become Christians shortly thereafter. And it's pretty fascinating. It's like when it comes to being on mission and telling people about Jesus, which is what we've been going for for the last year talking about the book of Acts, these are proper responses. These are responses we should expect when telling people about Jesus. Some people will make fun of you. Other people will be intrigued and want to hear more. Other people, through the power of the Spirit, will become Christians. And, you know, in sharing the gospel, we don't expect, you know, uh, we expect that God will do what he's going to do. But those are three responses that we see here from Paul. But that's the story of Paul in Athens. Like I said, one of the most studied and discussed passages of scripture when it comes to being on mission, when it comes to engaging culture. I've read textbooks where it's like when it comes to preaching, like this is one of the case studies on how to communicate the Bible to people. So what should we take and apply? All right, I've got four things for us here. Number one, observe the idols. Observe the idols. That's what, where Paul starts, and he uses that as a launching point to talk about Jesus. I'm getting this from verse 16 and 23. Verse 16, 
it says his spirit was provoked within him and he saw the city was full of idols. Verse 23, Paul says, I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. So Paul, you know, they don't read the Bible. They haven't read their Old Testament. Paul's looking for a launching point. He observes the idols and uses that as a launching point. So we need to step back. If we, need, if we are called to be on mission, like God has called us to, to tell people about Jesus, I think we can pull a, a tip from Paul and just ask ourselves, what are the idols of our day? What are the objects of our worship? Everyone is pouring their lives over something. Everyone has something ultimate in their lives. What, is, what are the idols of our day? What are the idols that your friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus, what do they believe? And let's go ahead and admit, right? We don't live in Athens where the culture is saturated uh, in idol worship, going to temples to worship statues, right? We're far too civilized for that, right? But people do flock and gather together uh, one weekend a year to buy online and go to department stores to buy whatever they want for the sake of comfort and materialism. We don't call it God worship anymore. Now we call it Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Our culture doesn't worship Zeus or Apollo or anything like that, but thousands of strangers do gather regularly on the weekends, dress up in their favorite jerseys, and scream and sing and cheer for hours on end to their favorite sports team. Again, we don't call that pagan worship. Instead, we call it college game day. One missiologist by the name of Leslie Newbigin said, I think as far back as the 1960s, said that the less religious a society becomes, the more political in turn they would become because something needs to fill that void. Something needs to fill the void of uh, some narrative about humanity and what to do about society. And some 80 years later, our country gets so divided over politics at the very least every four years. Again, we don't call it temple worship. Instead, we call it the presidential election. And that's just a few examples of how, even though we would not say outright we are a country that worships idols, we do worship materialism and wealth and sports and politics. And I could go on. We worship uh, materialism and comfort and sex and salary and all of that. It's really not all that different. We still have idols in our day. And observing the idols of our day requires knowing our friends and neighbors and having conversations with them to figure out what they believe. Where we can observe from like a, a bird's eye view what the idols of our culture are, but to understand what does your neighbor believe? What idols are they holding on to? Requires that we have conversations with them and build friendships with them so that over time we can ask these questions and figure out what they believe. So if you really wanna know what a person's idol is, ask yourself, what are people afraid of most? What do people long for most passionately? Where do people go to for comfort? What do people complain about the most? What makes people the happiest? How do you explain your, how do people explain themselves to others? I think that's really fascinating. Usually whenever someone describes themselves is usually a good indicator of the things that they hold most valuable and important in life. For those who believe in God, what makes them angry at God? Because usually people get angry at God because he fails to provide them with their idols. What do people brag about? Whose approval are people seeking? These are good ways we can sort of find out what people hold as ultimate 
in their lives. The way we've talked about it before, we borrowed this from Pastor Tim Keller. He says there are four main drives, four human uh, desires that people crave that ultimately find their fulfillment in God, but we turn to a whole host of other things to find our fulfillment in those things. He says they are control, approval, comfort, and power. These are the four main drives we all want as humans, and we go to different things to be fed those things. So the idol of control says my value is determined by how I can control my life, my relationships, my finances, my future. The idol of approval, my value is determined by how much acceptance and attention and love I can get from others. Comfort, my value is determined by how stress-free my life can be. The idol of power, my value is determined by being the very best. So what are your neighbor's beliefs and idols and where are they coming from? The next thing we, we see Paul do after he observes the idols is he undermines their idols. He undermines them. So he notices, all right, y'all worship these gods. Well, let me tell you how ultimately these gods don't deliver and why my God is better. Verse 24, I'm pulling this from. Paul says about his God, he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now he's being gracious with them, but really what Paul is doing is he's digging at them. And he's saying, how powerful are your gods really if they need to get something from you? How great can they be if they're needy and dependent on what you can bring to the table? What he's driving at here is, look, your idols, your gods are not all that great. They're gonna fail you and let you down because they're needy. They're not worth your time and energy if they need something from you. Your gods are not God enough. And similarly, the same is true for the idols of our day. They ultimately cannot deliver on the promises that they offer. Author David Foster Wallace said this once. This is a quote we use a lot, but man, it's so good. David Foster Wallace, for what it's worth, uh, was not a Christian, uh, literary author, critic, uh, super, super brilliant guy. He says this, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And pretty much anything you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Whatever we worship, Wallace says, it's ultimately gonna fail you because you're always gonna want more. That's the nature of of idols. They're always going to want more from you, and they will crush you eventually. And the list could go on. If you center your life and identity on your spouse or partner, you will inevitably become emotionally dependent on them and jealous and controlling. If you center your life and identity on your family or children, you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you and have no self of their own. If you center your life and identity on your work and career, you will be driven to become a workaholic 
and in the process become a boring, shallow person, and at worst, you will lose your family and friends in the process. If you center your life and identity on pleasure and gratification and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something. You will be chained to coping mechanisms to avoid the harsh realities of life. If you center your life and identity on relationships and and approval, you will be constantly and overly hurt by criticism and always losing friends, and you you will always have this fear of confronting others. If you center your life and identity on religion and morality, you will, if you are living up to your moral standards, be proud and self-righteous and look down upon others. But if you don't live up to your moral standards, you will constantly live a life of shame and guilt and regret with no hope or grace in your life at all. Your idols, your gods are ultimately going to fail you. It's not going to work. It's never going to be good enough. Your gods are not God enough because nothing created can bear the weight of providing for us the identity and meaning that only God can provide. You're going to need something better. So what do your friends and neighbors and coworkers and people you know who don't know Jesus, what do they believe? What are their idols? And how can you help them see their disconnects? Which, let me just go ahead and say, it's probably not gonna be a simple five-minute conversation, right? It's probably gonna require that you build trust with them and build a friendship with them and over time that you understand those things where over time, probably you are gonna have to be vulnerable with them and in the process, they might be vulnerable with you and they might share with you their struggles and their insecurities and in, then, and in that process, you can share with them the hope of Jesus. Last thing that Paul does, number three, is he shows them how Jesus is better. He undermines the idols, and then he shows them how Jesus is better. I get this from verse 30 and 31. He says, Now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul is saying here, repent now. Repent, stop chasing after false gods and turn to the true God, the one who died for sin, who rose from the dead, who will one day come back and judge the world and do away with evil and usher in his kingdom forever. Believe in him. And what's interesting here is Paul cites the resurrection as the proof, the objective evidence you need to turn away from your gods and turn to Jesus because he actually rose from the dead. And if that's actually true, then the ball is in your court. What are you going to do now with Jesus? What are you going to do? Despite your problems and your barriers and your objections, Jesus actually rose from the dead and offers you life to the fullest if you repent and believe and turn away from your gods and turn to him as the true God. What are you going to do now? Just like the story in Athens, our idols will ultimately keep wanting something from us and will ultimately fail us. And the good news of God, though, is built on a claim that Jesus rose from the dead. And because of that, we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by grace and grace alone. God does not need anything from us for us to receive his grace and mercy. All we are called to do is see our need for him. And in return, when we follow Jesus, we see that everything we've been searching for ultimately finds its deepest fulfillment in Jesus. 
if control is what you're after, guess what? You can never have enough. And the pursuit of it, it will ruin your life. But you're invited to rest in the arms of the one who works all things for the good according to his purposes. If comfort has been your God, then there's a God in heaven for whom you were created at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. If approval is what you've built your life on, you have the Lord of the universe who says that in Jesus, he delights in you. He calls you a son. He calls you a daughter. And he is never leaving your side. God will accept you. So who cares what other people think? If power is what rules your life, Jesus has all the power in the world. So you can stop performing and you can let your guard down and show your weakness and be loved by the God who made you and delights in you. Jesus is the only God who won't let you down, who laid down his life for you. And not just that, but rose from the dead to prove that every word he ever said was true and right. Last thing for us, point number four, what started this whole missionary endeavor to Athens was that Paul was provoked. He was provoked. We see that in verse 16. It says that he was walking around and saw the idols and that his spirit was provoked. Paul's like, whoa, 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 all these idols, people are worshiping after these false gods. What's going on here? And he's provoked in his spirit. He's moved to compassion for these people. And this is going to be what motivates him going to such great lengths to share the gospel with all these people is because he is provoked And I think that's so key because in our efforts to be on mission, we can't lose sight of the fact that compassion and love for people are what ought to motivate us. Here are people who don't know Jesus, who are worshiping false gods, who are worshiping idols that God deeply loves and they are throwing their lives away worshiping false gods. Again, this requires that we have friendships with these people, that we understand them and know their stories and have a deep compassion for them because if we don't have a deep compassion for them, we will never be moved to be on mission. With all of this, we have to be provoked like Paul was, a deep love for people, a compassion for people, to know that what God really is about, to know that Jesus really rose from the dead and as a result, we are moved to go to those people where it's not something where it's like we have no compassion at all and so we just ridicule people who are not like us or we become indignant or we look down on people, but rather we have this spirit-filled compassion and we are provoked, we are heartbroken because these things that people are chasing after will never work out for them in the long run. And I want us, if we are to be a city on a hill a light to the world, if we are to be on mission, if we are to be spirit-empowered missionaries, this requires of us that we are provoked by your neighborhood, by the brokenness you see, by our city, by the world, by the ways in which people are trying to make their life work apart from God. I want us to be provoked. It was last reported in the city of Columbia. There was about 100,000 people who don't know Jesus within the five-mile radius of the state capital. Columbia was last reported has a higher, the greater Columbia area has a higher homelessness rate than New York City. Does that not move you? Does that not move you to compassion? But to zoom out even further, 65% of the world's population does not know Jesus. In the last year alone, 
Roughly 5,600 Christians were murdered for being Christian. Last year, it was reported more than ever, more than 6,000 Christians were detained or imprisoned for professing the name of Jesus. Another 4,000 plus were kidnapped. More than 5,000 churches and other religious facilities were destroyed last year alone. Can't look at that and be provoked, be provoked to love Jesus and to be on mission for Jesus and to have compassion for people that they might know and see the God that you know and see. And the thing that gives me hope when I see how bad things are, when I see how we as a people are not provoked as we should be, when I see the homelessness and the brokenness and all the people that don't know Jesus, when I hear about Christians dying and getting thrown in jail all over the world, the thing that gives me hope is that our God is even more provoked than we are. And he is working to make his kingdom come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I know that he is so provoked by all the brokenness that one day he's going to return and make everything right and reconcile all things back to himself. That ought to be an anchor of hope within us, y'all, where we see this stuff and, you know, it's so broken and messed up and twisted and evil, but to know that God is more provoked than we are and he is working out all things so that his kingdom will come on this planet. And that ought to give us hope and not be jaded or be cynical by life, but to know that God is at work. He's at work. So if you find yourself not being as provoked as you should be, look to Jesus. Read about Jesus in his word. See his hatred for sin and idolatry. See it lead him to the cross as he dies for the sin of the world. See him conquer it when he rises from the dead. See him seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning over it even today until he one day returns. Church, let us fix our eyes on him and trust his spirit to cause our hearts to be provoked by what provokes him.